and we are live so good evening and good day everybody i hope you're doing well and welcome to the fifth episode of ask abhijit we are done with four we are into number five now so today's episode is as you know it's about india's history ancient and more recent but uh, before we begin i would like to make a couple of points so first of all i'm going to change the format just a little bit so my intention by of of doing these uh, live question answer sessions is to provide you the maximum possible value in the 60 to 90 minutes that we have and the best way to do this for you provide you the best value in the long run is to pick the best possible questions that you are asking me not only live but also in the comments that you have been uh, putting in the videos so going forward what i'm going to do is i'm going to pick 10 or 12 comments i'm going to pre-select 10 or 10, 12 comments for each session and i'm going to list them in the description of the video and i'm going to answer those comments your comments i'm going to answer them first and then depending on how much time we have i'm going to pick some comments from the live chat so that way i hope that i provide you the best possible value in the long run i know that i would i would love to sit down with each one of you individually and give you half an hour and answer all your questions but unfortunately that's not possible so i hope that by doing this i'm going to be able to give you some good knowledge and information because now i'm able to understand the rhythm and the flow of this uh, particular format better so going forward this is how we're going to roll and let's see how it goes maybe we'll change it again in the future but going forward for at least some time we're going to do this so let's begin uh let us i have uh, chosen some i think 12 questions that you people have asked me already about indian history so i'm going to start with those first so let's start with question number 1 so this is by aryan ambikar i have seen many people glorifying moguls even though they were very cruel these people also said that shivaji maharaj was a coward my question is out of so many mogal kings is there anyone who deserves appreciation i appreciate one or two works of akbar but not all is there someone who was an ethical mogal leader right good question aryan so first of all i would like to say this that anybody who considers shivaji maharaj to be a coward needs to have their head examined shivaji maharaj was not a king he was an emperor he reconquered the entirety of india almost the entirety of india from the turkic invaders and he established political union and political unity of india he established what he described as hindavi swarajya so he won independence for us from our invaders and our occupiers so that is what he achieved one man in one lifetime was able to free the whole of india from the foreign invader that is a monumental achievement i think i would consider shivaji maharaj to be one of the greatest kings of our land in the at least the past 1000 years maybe in the past 2000 years as well so so that is about uh, shivaji maharaj now is there any mogal leader who was an ethical leader so to answer this sort of question the best way to do it is to do a comparison right so the moguls were invaders there were foreigners who came to india their later generations were born in india and they ruled this country for uh, several generations of their dynasty now there is another dynasty which were also invaders who also ruled india 
And these are the Kushans. So the Kushans were essentially from modern-day Xinjiang, the region north of Tibet, which is currently occupied illegally by China. So the Kushans were from that region, from the Tarim River Basin region, and they invaded India from the north, and they occupied India, they conquered India, and they ruled it for several generations. And the, one of their greatest emperors was Kanishka, Kanishka the Great. So let us compare someone like Akbar with someone like Kanishka, because these are both descendants of invaders, descendants of foreigners, who both, we can say that they made India their homeland. Right. So let us compare. Let us compare the rule and the uh, methodology of ruling of these two kings. So Kanishka the Great. If you look at his life and his career, he promoted India's national interest relentlessly. He he spent his whole life promoting and furthering India's national interest. He conquered vast territories north and west of the Himalayas. His kingdom, his empire stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Aral Sea all the way into northern India and all the way into eastern India. He also reconquered the Tarim River Basin from the Chinese. And not only did he expand India's sphere of influence militarily, he spent a great deal of energy in expanding India's cultural influence worldwide. So he was a great patron of the arts and of culture and philosophy and religion. Right? He held one of the one of the major Buddhist conferences in Kashmir, where Buddhist scholars from all over the civilized world came, and uh, they they had uh, discussions and seminars, and they expanded upon each other's knowledge. And not only did he do this, Kanishka, he also sent Dharmic missionaries to the east. So at the, the, there was this time when, uh, during Kanishka's time, that India was trading with this new formed Chinese civilization. And we were sending merchants and traders, whole caravans of these people to China to, to trade with them. And Kanishka ensured that every such caravan of merchants and traders would carry a few Buddhist monks with them. And these were not just Buddhist monks. These were monks who were well-versed in all the Dharmic scriptures, the Vedas and the Buddhist uh, philosophy as well. So because of these actions of Kanishka, Indian culture and India's sphere of influence expanded immensely. We essentially conquered China culturally without ever sending a soldier across. So this is what Kanishka did. He expanded India's national interest economically, militarily, and culturally. This is what Kanishka did. Even though he was a foreigner, he made India his, his own, not just as an invader and occupier, but he he promoted India's culture. So he did more than most other kings would do to promote and further and enrich India's indigenous culture. So that is Kanishka. Now let's compare that with Akbar. My only question to you is, you've already, all of us, we learn about Akbar in our uh, studies, right? In our history textbooks. Show me anything comparable that Akbar did for India's indigenous culture. I don't see anything that he did to promote India's indigenous culture. And militarily also, he did not expand India's sphere of influence beyond the present-day Himalayan boundaries, right? He did not cross the Himalayas. He did not go eastwards or westwards and expand India's sphere of influence militarily. So Akbar is considered to be the greatest of the Mughals, the most tolerant, the most uh, secular, etc. Well, if you compare Akbar, who was a foreigner, 
or descendant of foreigners with Kanishka, who was also a descendant of foreigners, I would Kanishka, I would consider Kanishka to be an immense, immensely greater king and emperor than Akbar ever could be. So, so if you were to compare Akbar with the, if you were to compare the Mughals with the Kushans, there is no comparison. The Kushans were far more Indianized and they were far more. Uh, they did much more for India than the Mughals ever did. The Mughals were extractive in nature. They did not contribute much to India. The Kushans contributed an immense deal. So that's what my answer would be. That uh, ethical, I, I don't know what how to define ethics, but there was nothing great about any of the Mughals. There is nothing good that they contributed to India. That is my personal opinion. Great question. Thank you. I'm going to go on to the next pre-selected question. This is by Supriyo Chaudhary. So do explain the theories behind the destruction of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, our Indus Valley civilization. Yes, that's a good question. So when the British occupiers of India, when they first discovered these two great ancient cities, the ruins of these two great ancient cities, they they put forth the theory that these were the remnants of, of an indigenous Indian population, which was destroyed by invading Aryans. And uh, the archaeologist Mortimer Wheeler, who was the chief, who was the head of the Archaeological Survey of India, he actually went ahead and said that Indra, sta Indra stands. Uh, Indra, it, it is the fault of Indra that this happened. Basically, Indra stands accused of the destruction of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro. Because at that time, during the Vedic age, Indra was our greatest, uh, was the greatest god and the most powerful god of our Vedic pantheon. He is the equivalent of the of the later god of, of Greece, Zeus, and the later Jupiter and the later Thor. These are the same god with different names. So Indra was the greatest god, and Mortimer Wheeler said that it was because of Indra and because of the Aryans who followed Indra and worshipped Indra that these cities were destroyed. Now, if we look at the actual hard physical evidence, we find that there is no evidence of any violent destruction whatsoever in any of the hundreds or thousands of Harappan sites. There is not one single evidence of warfare or destruction or battles or massacres or brutal deaths or any such thing. And therefore, there is. it's very clear there was no invasion by the Aryans or by, by the, these hypothetical Aryans. So Harappa and Mohenjo-daro and the other cities and urban centers of the Harappan phase of our civilization were not destroyed by violence. What really happened in truth is that this region was gradually abandoned over a number of centuries not in five years or 10 years, but over three, 400 years. Slowly, slowly, these places were abandoned because of climate change. So six, so around 8,000 years ago, the Indian monsoon was much heavier than what it is today. And this heavy monsoon nourished the rivers of the Sapta Sindhu region, which is present day Punjab, Sindh, Balochistan to some extent, and also uh, parts of Gujarat. So this area is the Sapta Sindhu region and the rivers were nourished by India's heavy monsoon. And around six, around 8,000 years ago, the monsoon started declining slowly. And because of this, 
the river started uh, shrinking and the greatest river of all the saraswati eventually dried out and because of this climate change the lifestyle that the people of this region used to enjoy was no longer sustainable and that's why they slowly slowly over several centuries abandoned these cities and urban settlements one by one and moved eastwards into madhya pradesh into gujarat into haryana punjab uttar pradesh etc so that is what happened it was not destruction it was gradual slow abandonment because of climate change climate change is a real thing the earth's climate has always been changing if you look at the past 20 30000 years there are ups and downs of climate there are ice ages and warmer period, periods and so on so in india you had the climate change in the form of declining monsoons so that is the actual reason why harappa and mohenjodaro and these other settlements were abandoned and this has been proven repeatedly if you look up the uh, journal nature which is the world's preeminent scientific journal then there are several research papers that have demonstrated that this is what happened the climate change is what caused the gradual abandonment of this entire vast urban uh, sphere of our civilization so that is the answer to this question supriyo thank you next question is this is by devrat mehta mishra how old is ramayana if rama setu is 7000 years old then why don't we find evidences that old in ayodhya so the ramayana has many it's it's an immense uh piece of our history there are so many episodes such detailed things that happened that span the entire length and breadth of our subcontinent so it's a massive massive event across the entire across almost the entirety of our of, of our geography and one of the epochal pivotal events in the mahabharat in, in the ramayana sorry is the construction of an artificial land bridge between southern india and the island of lanka and this has been considered to be a myth for the entirety of the british occupation of india and even after independence our mentally colonized historians have kept on insisting that this is a myth and unfortunately for their narrative it is a couple of american universities that have recently discovered and proved that this land bridge which is which is known as adams bridge for some reason which is actually ram setu they have demonstrated that this land bridge this land connection is man made it is artificial the stones are artificial over there they have been artificially placed there so this has been proved by two different separate american universities right so it's clear that this so called mythological tale has turned out to be true and if this central tale of the ramayan is true it means that the ramayan actually happened right and what these scientists discovered was that this man made bridge is at least 7000 years old it may be older than that we still don't know for sure our government and our historians our archaeologists our scientists have thus far not taken the initiative of going there and doing some actual testing and trying to determine the date of this land connection so when we do this when this is eventually done we will have a better idea of when this land bridge was connected was constructed and then we will know whether it is 7000 years old or 10000 years old or or however old or young it is so as of now i can say that it's at least 7000 years old now your second part of the question is why don't we find evidences that old in ayodhya well have we looked in ayodhya is anybody doing any archaeology in ayodhya 
absolutely not nothing is being done so if you don't look you will not find anything right as simple as that india has never invested in archaeology india seems to the the authorities and the establishment in india which is mainly the bureaucracy that runs the asi the archaeological survey of india these people seem to have absolutely no interest in discovering the truth about how old we were and the truth about the origins of our great ancient civilization there is no initiative at all thus far in this one hopes to see some change but so that is the reason why we don't find any evidence thus far in ayodhya because we have not been looking there if we start digging and excavating then we're going to find lots and lots of things and they're going to prove the antiquity of our civilization and give us a real answer as to when these events actually happened so i look forward to something of this sort being done sooner rather than later right good question the next question is by yashwardhan oja so who were the indo greeks how did these indo greek kingdoms come into being and also please tell us about king menander right this is a very interesting chapter of indian history and an important chapter of indian history that our textbooks again don't cover at all so what let me start at the beginning how did this indo greek uh, phase of western india's history begin so around the 3rd or so century bce we had this attempted feeble invasion by alexander which was repulsed very easily and it it ended up causing alexander's eventual death when he went to when he went back when he retreated to babylon now after alexander's death his general seleucus nicator he took over the reins of power among the greeks he there was a brief power struggle between the various generals that alexander had and seleucus nicator came out on top and he attempted a new invasion of india which is recorded by india by india's historians and our emperor at that time was chandragupta maurya now seleucus nicator came up to uh, western india afghanistan punjab that sort of region there were some skirmishes between india and the, between the indian emperor and the greeks and eventually what happened was that instead of fighting further chandragupta and seleucus nicator got together they came to an agreement Chandragupta Maurya agreed to accept Seleucus Nicator's daughter as his wife so they became relatives Chandragupta became the son-in-law of Seleucus Seleucus Nicator and India and the Greeks became allies military allies and what Chandragupta did was he gifted 500 war elephants to his father-in-law to Seleucus Nicator and Seleucus Nicator used that to forge a great empire in western asia which is west of the boundary of india so iran and uh, other regions of central asia etc so this was the seleucid empire and after the slow disintegration of this empire small kings and satraps of this of this empire started um, forming small kingdoms in western india in the region of afghanistan and punjab and sindh so this was the beginning of the indo greek kingdoms and the indo greek phase of history it lasted about 200 years from the 2nd century bce to the very beginning of the 1st century ce thereabouts okay that's the rough period of history you don't have to memorize dates in history it, it's enough to know the approximate time periods because that's what 
helps you understand the cause and effect chain of history. So it was about 200 years and one of their greatest kings was King Milind, who is known as Menander in the West. So Milind was an Indo-Greek uh, king. Uh, the Greeks settled down in this region and they probably had Indian wives and all that. So they were all slowly assimilating into Indian culture. Now Milind was very well versed in Indian history, Indian culture and philosophy. He was well versed in the Vedas, in Mimansa and Sankhya and Yoga and these philosophies, etc. And he had a debate with a, Buddha, with a famous Buddhist monk whose name I cannot recollect right now. Please go ahead and look it up yourself. It's very easy to find. So he had a debate with a famous Buddhist uh, guru. And he ended up be being impressed by the answers that this Buddhist guru gave him. And he, he ended up adopting both the Dharma. So the philosophy and the teachings of the Buddha, which is another form of Hinduism. Remember that. So Milinda became a great patron of primarily of Buddhism. And he was also a very accomplished military uh, campaigner. So he forged a, a quite, quite a large kingdom for himself. And uh, he was very generous with donations and, and uh, in patronizing arts, especially architecture and all that. So all the way in the East, we have certain stupas that have been that uh, are the result of donations given by King Milinda or Menander. And there are certain carvings of him all the way in India South, all the way up to Bihar. So he was a very accomplished military campaigner, but he was a great patron of the arts and of culture. And uh, he is justly remembered as one of the great uh, Indo-Greek kings. So that is briefly about the uh, a brief introduction to the Indo-Greeks. And how did the Indo-Greek uh, Indo era come to an end? Well, it ended because of the Scythian invasions of India, which happened from northern India, from, from uh, the Khyber Pass. They came inside into, into Punjab and they eventually displaced the Indo-Greeks. Now, these Scythians also assimilated into India and many people in Western India would have some partial Greek and Scythian ancestry for sure. And after the Scythians, it was the Kushans who invaded and they also assimilated in, into India and they gave us some of our greatest emperors. So it's a fascinating and tumultuous and rich period of our history that we are never taught about. So kindly, I would, I would encourage you to look it up online. The information is available online. You just need to uh, search for it. It's a wonderful and fascinating period of our history. So thank you for this great question, Yashwardhan. Okay, this is by F-I-J-E. My tribe is possibly Mongolian, but we are Indian. So I am assuming that you are from somewhere in the northeast of India. Manipur, Nagaland, Mizoram, Arunachal Pradesh, thereabouts. So there is this popular belief in India, which is uh, that the people of northeast India are of Mongolian descent. They have Mongolian ancestry. They are of Mongolian origin. This is a very popular belief in India and it is it has been essentially encouraged and promoted in the academic sphere. So there is this outdated and unscientific concept of the Mongoloid race. There is no such thing as race. Okay, this concept is completely unscientific. But this is what India's academicians and historians have been propagating. That there are two or three races in India, Aryan race, Dravidian race and Mongoloid race. And that is why there is this very popular misconception 
that the people of Northeast India are Mongoloid or Mongolian in origin, which is not true. Yes, you are right. You are Indian. You are very much Indian. You are as Indian as anybody else, but you are not Mongolian in, in origin. The people of Northeast India, they speak Tibeto-Burman languages. So this is a language family that stretches all the way from north, in uh, all the way from Tibet in the north to Burma in the south, to Myanmar in the south. So this is one common language family, which indicates that this is, this is originally one common ethnicity that eventually uh, spread across a large geographical area and grew up, uh, grew, grew apart and slowly developed different forms of of culture and languages. So the people of Northeast India, they most of them, they speak Tibeto-Burman languages. So you are not Mongolian, you are Tibeto-Burman. And the thing is that linguistically you are Tibeto-Burman, ethnically you are Tibeto-Burman. But if you check the DNA, if you, if you examine the DNA of the people of Northeast India, they also saw the, also demonstrate evidence of the same genetic markers that are found throughout India. So one of the most common patrilineal haplogroups or lineages in India is called R1A1A and it is erroneously called the Aryan gene. It is not the Aryan gene but that's what some people like to call it to present a certain narrative of history. So this lineage R1A1A is found in North India, South India, East India, West India. It is found in tribal peoples. It is found in Adivasis. It is found in Brahmins. And it is found in the people of Northeast India as well. So genetically, you have similar ancestry and the same ancestry as most of the people or much of the people in other parts of India. So genetically, you are very much Indian, even though superficially the people of Northeast India may have a slightly different appearance, but culturally and, and uh, genetically you are very much Indian. Of course, the genetic, genetic mix in Northeast India is diverse and it is different from other parts of, from other local regions of India, but still there is a genetic connection and very, and a very strong cultural connection as well. So I would disagree with the statement that it is possibly Mongolian. No, it is not Mongolian. It is most likely Tibeto-Burman. And I agree completely that you are absolutely 100% Indian. Right. Good question. Okay, this is by Tanmay. Please explain in detail about the Romani people and why they are marginalized even today. That is a very good question and an important question. So some of you may have seen that I have discussed this on Ranveer Alabadiya's channel about the Romani people, who they are. So let me first uh, clear a very popular misconception. These are not the Romanian people. These are the Romani people. The Romanian people are not Romani, but some Romani people are Romanian because they live in Romania. So there is a difference. Romani, Romanian, it is not the same. It is very different. The Romani people are originally Indians. So let me tell you the story, how this happened and what, what it's all about. So about 1200 years ago or so, we had these waves of Turkic and Arabic invasions into India, mostly Turkic. So these Turks, they kept on push, trying to push into India. They were defeated repeatedly for several centuries, but eventually they were able to succeed as we know very well. So what happened is that these guys who came from Central Asia, they would come into India, they would do 
terrible things, right? And they would take back hundreds of thousands of Indian men, women, and children as slaves. All right. So there were lots of slaves. Many of them died in the in the mountains, the so-called Hindu Kush mountains. Kush means to kill. Hindu Kush means to kill Hindus. So these mountains were Hindu killers because they were so cold and Indians were accustomed to warmer climates. So they killed, I, I, I don't even know how many Indians were killed there, but it gave these mountains the name of Hindu Kush. So these Indians were taken by the tens or hundreds of thousands as slaves into the uh, Turkic and Islamic world. Even today, the people of Yemen look like Indians. If you, if you were to notice that, a lot of Arabs look like Indians. There is a reason for that. Hmm? And many Central Asian people also look like Indians, if you look carefully. So this is the consequence of the slaves that were forcibly taken out of India. Now, many of these people were artisans, musicians, etc. So I, what probably happened was that they took too many slaves out of India and eventually they, could, they did not know what to do with them. And they did not want to massacre these people in their own country. And therefore, I think what happened, this is speculation, we don't have proof, but this is the most likely uh, reason of what, what happened, the, the most likely uh, story of what happened. So what most likely what most likely happened is that these slaves were ordered to go west and leave the country of the uh, wherever they were, they, they were enslaved. And they were prohibited from going back eastwards into India. And so it, this story began of these Indian origin people wandering across Europe for centuries. So these people, they speak an Indo-Aryan language. The language they speak is most closely related to Gujarati and Rajasthani and Punjabi. It is most likely closest to Gujarati, modern day Gujarati. And they look like Indians, many of them. All right, the Romani. So they are popularly known as the gypsies in Europe. And they are very badly marginalized. Their history is full of tragedy and, and slavery and often lots of massacres and genocide. So they have always been treated, treated as outsiders in, Euro in Europe. They have never been allowed to settle down. They keep wandering. They live a nomadic existence. In the, in the past centuries, many of them were enslaved. Many of them were put to death just for being of a different ethnicity. Right? And this persecution and marginalization continues today. So even today, people are afraid to admit that they have Romani ancestry. And yet so many of the most talented people in Europe, in all kinds of uh, spheres and professions, many of the most talented people in Europe are actually Romani. Let me give you some examples. Charlie Chaplin was Romani. Pablo Picasso was Romani. Uh, Eric Cantona, the great French footballer, was Romani. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the Serbian, and uh, no, I, I think he's, he's Swedish. He's Swedish now. Zlatan Ibrahimovic is Romani. Robert Plant, the great singer of Led Zeppelin, is Romani. Elvis Presley was Romani. I could give you a thousand more examples. Some of the greatest entertainers and sports people of all time are of Romani origin, right? So even though they have been persecuted and they have suffered so much, they are still so, they, they are culturally still such a big force. The national music of Spain, flamenco, is a Romani creation. The Romani, it's a, it's a Romani form of music. Flamenco dance is Romani. And flamenco dance is very similar to Kathak. If you were to examine 
its uh, morphology, right? And, it, and its dynamics. So the Romani people have been persecuted for centuries. They are of Indian origin. Many of them still look Indian, right? And many of them are stateless even today. They are not given uh, official documentation. They don't have passports. So they go from country to country, state to state to state. They live as nomads. They have to live on the outskirts of cities in their wagons and carts. They are not allowed to settle down. If they settle down, they, their, their uh, settlements are essentially marginalized. There is no electricity. There is no sanitation. And uh, so this is the story of the Romani people. There are many of them in Romania. That is why, that's why there is this misconception and, and uh, confusion between Romani and Romanian. So the Romani people are people of Indian origin. They, they have converted to various religions, either Islam or Christianity, just to survive. But they still practice as much of their original indigenous culture as they can. Their customs are very different. There is this goddess in France. She is called Kali Sara. And she is supposed to be a representation of the Christian Virgin Mary, but she is dark in color. And every year she is given a ritual uh, immersion into the sea. So it is essentially the worship of goddess Kali in the guise of a Christian goddess or a Christian, uh, uh, you know, it's given a Christian identity. So that is how they try to still in some form or the other cherish their own culture. So these are our people. These are the people who are the sons and daughters of India. And so that's in brief about the Romani people. There are some good resources online that, that you can look up and you can learn more about them. So that is a very interesting and very important question. Next question, Diksha Poman. Is the site of Sanaoli in UP a Mahabharata era civilization? If yes, how will it alter India's history? Right, so Sanaoli is in, I think, western Uttar Pradesh. It's not far from Delhi. And what has been found there is a place where there are a number of burials. And the most striking burials are chariot burials. So there are coffins in which you have these very richly uh, bedecked individuals who have been buried and there are chariots over there. So they have found chariots, they have found coffins and they have found these great funerary items. Uh, they have found antenna swords made of, made of bronze, I believe, and other artifacts. So this has thrown a completely new kind of light on in, in India's ancient history. Now, we don't know if it is from the Mahabharata era or not, because we don't know exactly when the Mahabharata happened. But there is this ancient legend in the region of Sanawali that it was one of the five villages that Lord Krishna had tried to negotiate with the Kauravas in order to avert the Great War, the Great Mahabharata War. So that is a very ancient collective memory that has been passed on from generation to generation. So there does seem to be some sort of connection with the Mahabharata in this region, in this particular village of Sanawali. Now this archaeological find is very, very important because it is one of the oldest evidences of a chariot anywhere in the world. It's the first time an ancient chariot has been discovered in India. And the weaponry that has been found is very similar to certain swords that, were, that have been discovered in Mesopotamia. So there seems to be a connection, either trade or something between ancient India and Mesopotamia. 
Now, which was the direction of the trade? We don't know yet. This is we are just scratching the the surface of this of of uh, this particular find. There is still much more to be excavated. This is just a test excavation that has been done. This seems to be a very large settlement, a very large ancient settlement. So they have found warriors who have been buried them. Even one of these warriors was a woman, right? So, so it's interesting. So essentially, we have always considered India to have a certain kind of funerary, funerary tradition. We always cremate our dead. But we have found cemeteries in the Harappan uh, region of India and Pakistan. And now we have found a cemetery in Uttar Pradesh, which seems to be contemporaneous with the late Harappan phase of our civilization. So that throws a new kind of light on our ancient customs. Now, the thing is that the funerary practices that we found, the artifacts and the evidence that we have found there are very much similar to things that have been described in the Rig Veda, right? So it is very much part of our own culture. It is very much part of what we now call Hinduism. It is not a foreign practice. And yet we had practiced burials over there. So it is very interesting. We still don't know the significance of this, but it is a very exciting new find. And like I have said in previous episodes, if you dig anywhere in India, you're going to find very interesting archaeological evidence. So we are beginning to see the signs of this. So I think that it is going to alter Indian history. The more we ex excavate this site, the more interesting finds we will discover. And it's going to start filling up the big missing picture, the big, big missing gaps in the jigsaw puzzle that is ancient Indian history. So it is a very significant and very exciting find. And I cannot wait to see what more we discover there. Okay. Okay. This is from Nikhil Vankere. Thank you, Nikhil. Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism are both different religions. So Nikhil, I understand why you say this. I respect your opinion. Now, let me give you a different perspective. Right. So I have always been saying that Buddhism and Hinduism are two are essentially the same thing. Buddhism is just one another form of Hinduism. That is what I have said many times in public and in different forums. And I have got this comment hundreds of times that no, I am you are wrong. Buddhism and Hinduism are different. So the belief, the common and most popular belief is that Buddhism was a rebellion against Hinduism. It was a rebellion against the caste system. It was a reformative. It was a, it was an attempt to reform Indian society, and it was a new religion, and so on and so forth. And the arguments we get is that the concepts, the core concepts of Buddhism, are different from the core concepts of Hinduism. Hinduism has hundreds or thousands or millions of gods, and Buddhism doesn't believe in gods. And Hinduism has the concept of the eternal soul, and Buddhism does not believe in the soul. And Hinduism believes in the Vedas, and Buddhism rejects the Vedas. So these are the arguments that, that are put forth to say that Buddhism is separate from Hinduism. So that is the arguments. Now here, this is what I have to say. Let us examine the teachings of the Lord Buddha, of, of Gautam Buddha. Buddhism is what he taught, right? We And we have a very good record of his discourses and his teachings. These are very well recorded. So we know his exact words and what he taught and what he said in public over, over his lifetime, right? We have proper records of his discourses and his teachings. Now, I would like you like to ask anybody, any of my listeners today, please show me 
one example, one sentence from all his discourses, hmm, where he has said that he is starting a new religion called Buddhism. Where does he say that? And show me one example, one sentence in all his discourses, all his teachings, where he says that I am rejecting Hinduism and where he is saying that I am no longer a Hindu. Where does he say this? I can promise you, you will not find this anywhere. Gautam Buddha spoke about Dhamma or Dharma. You can say Dharma in Sanskrit or Dhamma in Pali. And he spoke about Dhamma and Dharma. He did not reject Dharma or Dhamma. And there is only one Dharma, by the way. There are not 15 different Dharmas. There is only one Dharma. It is a Dharmic umbrella which, which, encom- which encompasses a number of schools of thought, including Charvaka, which is materialism and atheism including Bodh Dharma, including Jaina Dharma, Mimansa and, uh, and uh, other schools of thought like Yoga and Sankhya and uh, Veshashika and Vedanta. So these are some of the schools of thought which fall under the umbrella of Dharma. These are quite diverse. Some of them are very different such as Charvaka, which rejects God, which rejects all spirituality. It is completely materialistic. And Bodh Dharma is one of these manifestations of dharma so it is all under the umbrella of dharma right now the the argument that buddha rejected the concept of the soul well i would like to point you to lord buddha's deathbed discourse the mahapari nirvana discourse which he spoke on the last night before he died it was in the city of kushinagar in uttar pradesh or, or northern india And in his last discourse on his deathbed, right, he said that the soul exists and it is permanent, it is immortal. And he said that he recognizes the authority of the Vedas. So my question is, why do these Buddhist scholars try to evade this particular piece of evidence? Why do they disregard Gautam Buddha's own words? where he has shown, demonstrated that he, his discourses are just another and that his teachings are just one form of the same philosophical and cultural and spiritual and religious tradition that is Dharma. Right? So I think this is enough evidence that both the Dharma and the other forms of Dharma are essentially one and the same. Now let me show you some more evidence. Thailand is a Buddhist country. I don't think anybody will dispute that. Right? Thailand is a Buddhist country. Now, in Thailand, why do you have so many Vishnu temples? Why are the Thai people so crazy about Lord Ganesh? Why do they worship Lord Ganesh? Why are they so fond of Lord Shiva? Why is the real name of Bangkok Indrapuri? Why do they have a great tableau of the Samudra Manthan, which is Hindu mythology, so so to say? Why do they have a great tableau of Samudra Manthan in Suvarnabhumi Airport in Bangkok? If they are Buddhists, why are they embracing Hindu culture and Hinduism, right? Let's talk about Japan. Japan is a Buddhist and Shinto country. Now, let's look look at the form of Buddhism they practice, right? They worship a goddess called Benzaiten. She is one of the most exalted goddesses in Japanese Buddhism. Who is Benzaiten? She is Saraswati, (laughs) right? They worship... Ganesh, they have a Japanese name from, for, for Ganesh, but they worship him. They have a Japanese name for Lord Shiva, but they worship Lord Shiva. They worship goddess Lakshmi. They worship every god and goddess that is part of Hinduism. And yet they are considered to be Buddhists. 
so how does a buddhist culture embrace hinduism so so deeply how does that happen i could give you a thousand more examples i think it suffices so i think i have made a very strong case and i have proven the fact that buddhism and hinduism are two sides of the same coin the divide between buddhism and hinduism if you look at literature and history it starts its first mention is during the colonial era of india during the indian occupation india's occupation by british by the british it is they who attempted to drive a wedge between the people of india by creating this artificial buddhism versus brahmanism divide these are colonial nations and our post independence education system and our great eminent historians and teachers have been promoting and propagating these false and extremely vicious and harmful colonial ideas whose purpose was to divide and fragment and splinter india so once again i reiterate buddhism and hinduism are the same thing buddhism is just another form of hinduism or hinduism is another form of buddhism it's the same thing so i hope i have explained this satisfactorily next question okay as we know there were big empires in the history of bharat like the guptas and the mauryas etc so they must have had big raj mahals or great royal palaces so where are they gone now <laughs> good question absolutely right you are absolutely right we had enormous enormously powerful and 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 very very influential empires we had very powerful emperors kanishka we had chandragupta maurya we had ashok we had uh, emperors like pushya uh, pushya mitrasunga we had uh, skandagupta among the guptas and so many more we had shivaji maharaj one of the greatest emperors of india right and we had many other kings and queens many of whom were very very great so why don't we have any great royal palaces in india we know that in the north of india much of this was destroyed by the turks but if you had royal palaces they would have repurposed them right in why are there again no great royal palaces in the south of india except one or two maybe in mysore etc but overall you will not find any great royal palace anywhere in india even if you look at the harappan phase of our civilization the greatest monuments of the harappan phase were public works like public assembly places the public bath etc but there is no sign of any great palace of any king or any ruler why is it so that's a fantastic question you've asked and again you will find no sign of any great royal palace in eastern in 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 southeast asia which was very much indianized and hinduized the greatest monuments throughout the indian and greater indian world were always temples right whether it is in, inside india or outside of india for example the borobudur stupa or the prambanan temple in indonesia and so many more examples so the greatest structures were always structures that served some kind of public good which had a public utility they you, you will never find any great royal palaces it is because according to indian culture according to raj dharma the king is supposed to live modestly he is not supposed to extract wealth from the people and become some kind of superman or something the king's duty according to raj dharma is to serve the people and to serve the kingdom and the nation and the civilization the highest morality for a king 
is that his people and his kingdom should prosper not that he should prosper and that is what india's kings and queens have always followed for centuries and millennia even in the harappan era you will not find a single great royal palace you will not find any architectural structure that tells you that this is a royal palace or a royal structure even shivaji maharaj did not, did not live in a great palace even a great queen like ahalya bai holkar lived in a very modest dwelling so this is indian culture our kings and queens always lived modestly their purpose of existence was to serve the people to serve the kingdom and to serve the civilization so that is what sets india apart from all other cultures look at china they have immense palaces the the so called uh, forbidden forbidden city in beijing right even in japan you have palaces and in egypt you had the pyramids and what not etc and throughout the world you have these great palaces and the castles that were the sole priority i mean the sole uh, residence of kings and queens and royalty so in india we did not have this class system everybody was more or less equal and everybody lived a life of dignity and equality and that is what differentiates india from every other culture so let's let's try and unlearn the false history we have learned and try to understand what india really was from the evidence that is staring us in the face so that is the reason why there are no royal palaces in india okay this is a question by narendra chavda i am very disheartened by the fact that you are not acknowledging my question which i really want to know uh, please give me some historical insights about the chavda dynasty okay i know that uh, narendra you have been asking this question several times so it's a very good question and it's very relevant to india's history so what was the chavda dynasty the chavda dynasty was a rajput dynasty in ancient gujarat so the story goes that around 700 or so in the, in the 7th and 8th century ad uh, there was this king called jay shekhar chavda who is colloquially known as jay shikri chavda nowadays so he, this this guy was a king of gujarat in of some parts of gujarat and his kingdom was invaded by a neighboring king and he was assassinated and jay shikri chavda's wife was pregnant at the time she escaped to the forests of gujarat there she gave birth to a boy who was named vanraj and this boy vanraj to make a very long story short he grew up in the forest that is why he was called vanraj he learned martial arts and he fought he he was able because because of his leadership capabilities and all that he was able to bring together an army of the tribal people the bhils and over time he fought a guerrilla war war he waged guerrilla warfare against the king who had usurped his father's kingdom and eventually he was able to regain his father's kingdom and vanraj chavda went on to become one of the most significant kings in gujarat history so he founded the city of patan anilpur patan which he named after his advisor anil he also founded the city of champaner which he named after his general champa so if you have seen the movie lagan the bollywood movie lagan it is set in the town of champaner which was once a great city and the city of patan which vanraj chavda founded was went on to become one of the greatest 
and largest cities in the ancient world. I think it was in the top 10 most populated cities a thousand years before today. So during the reign of Vandrat Chauda, Gujarat prospered like never before, right? Uh, and it is during the rule of Vandrat Chauda that Gujarat for the first time emerged as a distinct socio-cultural entity and it, it, it uh, emerged as a distinctive as a distinct linguistic entity. So at the time, the entire region of Gujarat and Rajasthan was known as Gurjardesh. It was the same people, the Gurjars, and they spoke the same language, which was old Gujarati or Gurjari. So during Vanraj Chavda's reign, Gujarat emerged as a separate and distinct cultural entity. It developed its own culture, a distinct culture for the first time. And the Gujarati language was its its genesis lies during this time period. So that is why he is one of the most significant kings of Gujarat. You could say, in a sense, he is the father of the of the distinct state of Gujarat. So that is the story of Vanraj Chavda. Uh, and after Vanraj Chavda, there were other kings of the same dynasty. And the Chavdas were Shaivites. They were a Shaivite uh, dynasty. They worshipped Lord Shiva. So they were the protectors and patrons of the great temple at Somnath. And after Vandrat Chauda died, there were a number of other kings. The last king did not have any children. And the son of his sister, whose name was Mulraj Solanki, usurped the kingdom from the last Chauda king. And he founded the Solanki dynasty, which is also known as the Chalukya dynasty. And Mulraj Solanki went on to become a great king. And the Solankis were a great dynasty. And they were obviously closely related to the Chavdas. Now the question is, what is the origin of the, Chira, of the Chauda dynasty? So one school of thought is that they are descended from the great Chhatrapa ruler Nahapana, who was a descendant of the Indo-Scythian invaders who displaced the Indo-Greeks, right? So Nahapana was in power, he ruled around the second or third century CE. And the earliest evidence of Chavdas that I have found myself is in Rajasthan. So the Chavda dynasty was earlier known as the Sri Chapa dynasty, the Sri Chapa dynasty. And the earliest king of this dynasty was in Binmal or, or Binmal in Rajasthan. His name was Vyagramukha. And he was the patron of the great scientist and astronomer Brahmagupta. So this king Vyagramukha of the Sri Chapa dynasty was a son or a grandson of a Hunnic invader. So there was this wave of Hunnic invasions in India, the White Huns, the Shweta Hunas. And they were initially repulsed by our emperor Skandagupta. But later they were able to invade successfully and conquer parts of northern India. So the father or the grandson of this king, Vyagramukha, was a White Hun conqueror. So Vyagramukha was a first or second generation migrant into India. And as you can see, he had assimilated into Indian culture and he was promoting Indian arts and Indian sciences. And he was the patron of the great Brahmagupta, who was one of the greatest scientists of India's history. So that is the first evidence that I have found of a Chavda king, Vyagramukha, in Binmal, Rajasthan. If that is the actual uh, origin of, of the Chauda dynasty, it means that the Chaudas have a little bit of a, a fleeting bit of Hunnic ancestry. So that 
is one of the possibilities and today there is no mention of this this dynasty in our textbooks even in gujarat there is no mention of this dynasty even though it was so significant uh so there is a little bit of the, about this dynasty and this dynasty it, its descendants are still around as you can see right so that's a little bit about the chavda dynasty so thank you for this question okay next question how did the taboo of crossing the sea and losing caste and social respectability originate in indian society considering ancient indian kingdoms were very successful seafarers like the kalingas cholas pallavas zamorins gujarati merchants etc this is a fantastic question brilliant brilliant i like that these questions are occurring to us now because our education system doesn't allow us to ask questions so this is a great question and you are absolutely right ancient india was known for its sea voyages the rigveda itself mentions ships which have 100 oars and there is a lot of evidence of indians crossing great distances by sea if you look at the history of australia if you look at the genetics of the aborigin aboriginal australian people the indigenous people of australia then you find that around 4 and a half thousand years ago there was an infusion of indian genes in their population and today about 12% of the genetics of australia's aboriginal people is of indian origin which proves that indians crossed this entire this vast distance to australia by sea and uh migrated into australia and settled down there and contributed their genetics that is 4 and 1/2000 years ago during the harappan phase of our civilization and we know that we have a great deal of influence in eastern africa our merchants had been traveling there for centuries and many of them have settled down there the cholas are well known for conquering the whole of southeast asia all the way to the philippines so clearly indians were routinely undertaking great naval voyages and yet we know that in the past few centuries there was this taboo that we should not cross the ocean otherwise it is i mean otherwise you lose your caste or respectability or whatever that that did happen so how did we go from these great seafaring civilization to a civilization that says that you should not cross the ocean it is bad for you that is a fascinating question So here is what I think happened. Our historians once again will not answer this question. I'm going to answer it for you. So when the Turkic invasions of India happened, India's society went into a shell. If you look at ancient sculptures and paintings and carvings of Indian people, you will see that Indian men and women were used to wear very less clothing. both men and women used to be topless essentially or they used to wear a very slim or or thin garment on the top but after the turkic invasions of india you find that women went into the parda they used to do they used to start doing the gungat and they used to, they started covering their faces this was a survival tactic because that was the only way you could retain your honor so india's society went into a shell and once again in the old days indian men the sons of families could go happily on long voyages which could take several years and their family would be safe nothing would happen to them but after the turkic invasions of india it became essential for all family members to stay together especially the men 
to protect the family. And therefore, I believe this taboo was put into place. Don't cross the oceans. Don't go far away from your family. Stay together and protect each other. So I believe that is the reason why over time this taboo was instituted, that Indians should not cross the sea. So I think it was just a survival tactic. It is not part of our culture or civilization, despite what people like Devdat Patnaik will try to teach you. That is all nonsense. Indians have always been very, very enthusiastic seafarers, always. So it is time we, re- re- we, we rediscover our sense of adventure, right? So there is the question to this wonderful, there is the answer to this wonderful question. Thank you. And this is a question by Nivedita. I want to know the politics, the inner politics of the partition of India, the facts that are not generally known to people. I believe partition was not what people wanted. Only few political personalities wanted it to happen. And today it's the cause of conflicts and death in Indian politics, military and history. Please bring bring light on this topic. Very good question, Nivedita. So here's what happened. When India was partitioned, the great Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan said something to Mohandas Gandhi. He told Gandhi that you have thrown us to the wolves. You have abandoned us to our deaths. That's what Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan told Gandhi. Because Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was a Pashtun, he had fought his entire life for a unified India. He had started this Khudai Khidbatgar movement of the Pashtuns, a non-violent movement of Satyagraha to free India from the British occupation. And when freedom was at hand, he found that he and his people had been abandoned to this new Pakistani nation. And because they had all fought for a unified India, they were now in great trouble in Pakistan. They would be persecuted for the rest of their lives. Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan spent the most, the majority of his post-independent life in house arrest in Pakistan. That's what happened to him. He was a great Indian, despite being a Pashtun, which is an Afghan ethnicity. He was one of the greatest Indian freedom fighters. And it is a shame that he and all the other Pashtuns who fought for India's independence as a united nation were left to, to fend for themselves in this, in, in this new nation of Pakistan. So as you can see, the Pashtuns fought for a free and united India. They did not want partition. And I, I dare say that n- almost nobody in India, in most parts of India, wanted the country to be fragmented in this manner. The lands that India gave up to the West and to the East are our ancestral lands. They have been the lands of our ancestors for at least 10,000 years. And this was given up for what? I don't know for what, right? Why was there no referendum in India that are the people of India willing to give up this land? I mean, that's what you call democracy, right? There was no constitution of India at the time. So it was perfectly fine to have a referendum in India and ask the people of India, what is your will? Are you willing to partition the nation or are you against the partition? But this question was never asked of the people of India. A small number of people, our so-called great leaders, got together with the British and decided, yes, we will break India apart into these pieces. And therefore, 
the partition of India happened. Now, what problem did the partition of India solve? It was supposed to solve the problem of the two-nation theory. And the two-nation theory is this fake theory that says that the people of India cannot live together as Hindus and Muslims. They have to live apart. So again, this problem... So, so Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi said that he was reluctantly endorsing partition to avoid a civil war. Now tell me what has happened in the past 70 years. We have had three actual wars with Pakistan. And we now have nuclear missiles pointed at each other. This is an even worse form of civil war. So partition did not solve anything, right? So what really happened is that the British had this divide and rule policy and they had a splinter and leave policy because they did not want India to be united, which would have been deleterious to their long-term geopolitical interests in the region because they still still had interests in the Persian Gulf region, in the, in the Arabian region, because there's a lot of oil and natural resources to be extracted from there. And they wanted a, a, a part of India, which was Pakistan, to be on their side. So they facilitated the partition of, Pakistan, of, of India and Pakistan. And by doing so, they ensured that the western region of India, which is now Pakistan, was geopolitically on their side. And that is the reason why the British wanted to engineer this partition of India. And our so-called great leaders, they were essentially very willing accomplices in achieving this. So that is the true story of what happened behind the scenes and why India was partitioned, right? So I think I have covered all the pre-selected questions. And now I'm going to take a few live chat questions. I know you've been asking lots of questions. So let me take some of your questions that you are asking me right now, my friends. Okay, this is by Mayank Thar. Uh, thank you, Mayank. Please shed some light on the kings of Kashmir and their contribution in the defense of North India. Also, what was the ancestry of the Kushans? Good question. The, the Kashmir had many good kings, many excellent kings. We had the Karkota dynasty, Lalitaditya Muktapida, who had a very vast kingdom in uh, northern India, which went beyond Kashmir. It, it included parts of northern India, parts of eastern India, and parts of Afghanistan, and further west from there. So we had many great kings in Kashmir. There were many great dynasties. Uh, and they did fight for a very long time to repulse the Turkic invasions of India. But unfortunately, Afghanistan, after Afghanistan, Kashmir was next to fall to the Turks. And uh, therefore, we have the situation that we have there today, uh, socio-culturally. So they had a great deal of contribution to the defense of India. Everybody contributed. Okay, nobody contributed more or less than the other. It was the defense of the homeland, the defense of your, of your people. So everybody fought, the Rajputs fought, the Rajats fought, the Sikhs fought, the Kashmiris fought, everybody fought and died for this land, right? So the Kashmiri kings and the people of Kashmir have done a great deal for the defense of India from these invasions. Okay, what was the ancestry of the Kushans? So the Kushans were, they invaded India out of the Tarim Basin River which is part of present-day Xinjiang, the so-called Xinjiang region that is currently occupied by China. So their ethnicity was Indo-European, 
if you look at their genetics which is which is uh, which we can uh, which we can study because their mummies have been found in the desert in the Xinjiang region so these mummies their genetics are exclusively R1A1A which is the same lineage that we have everywhere in India it is a patrilineal lineage that is the most prevalent among indian males and these kushans who lived far north of the himalayas had the same genetics which indicates that their ancestors a long time ago had migrated out of india and gone beyond the himalayas and formed their own kingdom there and a couple of thousand years later their descendants again came back into india so the genetic evidence tells us that the kushans themselves were of indian origin and we know that when the kushans conquered india there was no ethnic conflict there was no cultural conflict they were able to assimilate very harmoniously into the indian population because they were very much indian culturally and even ethnically we know that their skin color was lighter because they lived in a very in a northerly latitude so the further north you go the lighter your skin has to become in order to get sufficient vitamin d out of the little sunlight that you get so their skin color was lighter than the skin color of most indians today but ethnically culturally linguistically they were very much indian and like i said earlier emperor kanishka was one of the greatest patrons of indian culture of all time so i hope that answers your question okay question by rahul ragunath ragunath why hasn't anyone scaled mount kailash there's a rule prohibiting people to do so but has it ever been done before there are also many mysteries around it like being unnaturally symmetric thoughts so some people have attempted or planned to scale this great mountain i think there was some european uh, there were a couple of european mountaineers who had planned to do this surreptitiously but they were foiled uh, <clears throat> the chinese government which currently occupies the region of mount kailash even the chinese government has prohibited any attempt to scale this great mountain this mountain is sacred in hinduism in buddhism and jainism and in the tibetan indigenous religion which is called the bon religion it is universally holy it is a sacred mountain it is it was considered among the ancient peoples to be the center of the universe and it has been associated with various uh, supernatural and mystical energies and forces i don't know about that i haven't been there and i i have never seen any real scientific scientific evidence of that so i cannot uh, comment about that without data or evidence it is definitely very symmetric i'll tell you something every single temple in india is modeled after mount kailash see the pattern every single pa- temple in india is a stylistic representation four sided representation of mount kailash so yeah that's a very interesting uh, observation in case you haven't thought about it before this is a question by shirish sirish patra would indians have not known about the indus saraswati civilization if the british had not started excavations usually most of india's history passed across generations through folklore why not i 
IVC. We have always had this itihasa that consisted of ancient genealogies of kings and kingdoms and dynasties that went back thousands of years. And we have always known that they lived in great cities. This has always been there. It's been part of our collective civilizational memory. So yeah, this this history, this oral history has been passed on across generations. We have always known that India was the greatest civilization of all time. We call India Sonekichiriya and India was great. But we don't. We have lost the memory of how great and in what particular way it was that great. So because it's been such a long time since our ancestors abandoned these great cities, maybe that's why these memories have become vague. But I would not say that we have the British to thank for giving us the knowledge of the Saraswati civilization. We would have found it anyway. What happened was that the British were constructing a railway line and their workers, the workers they had employed, they came across this ancient city and lots of bricks and they used these bricks as ballast and for constructing various things. So they essentially damaged many of these settlements and sites until they finally realized that this is something very ancient. So I do not want to thank, I do not believe that the British are to thank for anything. They did not contribute anything to us. They only extracted whatever they could from our great land and they reduced us to utter destitution. So we would have found this one way or the other because it is such an immense ancient civilization, ancient era or phase of our civilization. So we had vague memories after all of our libraries and universities were destroyed. We still retained oral memories, but we did not know the specifics of where these ancient places were. And today we don't know what those cities and towns and and settlements were called. We call them Harappa and Mohenjo-daro. These are names in Sindhi. The original names would have been in Sanskrit, but those names are lost to us. Maybe someday we can find them. Let's wait and watch and hope. So, good question, Shirish. Let me take some more questions about India's history. This is by Rajat Sharma. Some of the world's best historians hated democracy, including Socrates. What's your take on this? (laughs) Democracy is an interesting concept. Do you think that the modern system of democracy is, is true democracy? I mean, we say that our country is a democracy because of our constitution and laws. So yeah, we can participate in elections. We can vote in elections. But is that all to democracy? What about standing for election? Are we able to stand for election? Can a common man or woman stand for election without without the immense money power that goes into it? So, you know, democracy is not what it seems. Democracy is not as democratic as it seems. And the Greeks, the Greeks are credited with the invention of democracy, which is nonsense. India had democracy for thousands of years before the Greeks even came into existence. Now, the kind of democracy the Greeks had was, well, it was very selective democracy. Only the nobility in Greece could vote 
or participate in elections the common people and the slaves and there were many slaves they could not participate in elections they could not vote or stand for election so this democracy was a fake democracy it was a partial democracy it was a democracy of the privileged people only the privileged few had the power to vote and participate in the electoral and democratic process and because of that philosophers like socrates i am not sure what his views were about democracy but yes i mean there's been a lot of criticism of all these practices so that is my take on it democracy isn't exactly what it seems in the united states you have this democratic system which has only two parties why only two parties why can't you have more parties right so is that really really democratic and the recent election <laughs> i mean what do you say about that so you know democracy is sometimes only in name and that is my take on that okay some more questions this is by ujwal call do afghans have hindu ancestry and are the naushera pathans actually the descendants of bappa rawal good question so afghanistan today is a mix of a number of ethnicities you have the pashtuns you have the you have the uzbeks and you have the hazaras as well and you also have some turkic peoples i believe the uh, so there are there is a mix of ethnicities some of them are turkic in origin some are hazaras who are mongol in origin and then you have the pashtuns so out of these ethnicities in afghanistan the pashtuns are the majority population and the pashtuns are the same genetically the same ethnic group as the people of india genetically they are same they are the same as us culturally they are still in some ways the same as us they practice islam that is true but if you look at their other cultural practices if you look at the indigenous dress of the pashtun people the pre islamic dress of the pashtun people it is very similar to the dress of people in western india especially rajasthan and gujarat and if you see the national dance of afghanistan the pashtun dance which is called attan it is exactly the same as the garba and dandiya ras dance of gujarat and even the music and the drum beats are the same so the pashtuns are a northern uh offshoot of the overall indian population they are culturally and genetically the same as us the pashto language is an indo aryan language or an indo iranian language so the pashtuns or the pathans are basically the descendants of hindus yes of course now the naushera pathans i am not sure if they are descendants of bappa rawal i do not have this information i will look it up and hopefully in a future episode i will get back to you about this but very good question the pashtuns the pathans are very much part of the overall extended population of the indian people okay let me take a couple of more questions oops where did that go this is by pranav nair uh right my opinion on graham hancock's work well for a very long time graham hancock was really was ridiculed by mainstream historians they made fun of him and they tried to humiliate him and marginalize him so what graham hancock his one of his uh, 
one of the theories he put forth in the 1990s is that there was a cataclysmic event about 12 or 13000 years ago there was some kind of meteor impact or cometary impact on earth which caused a sudden bout of global cooling right so this is the hypothesis that he had put forth and people made fun of him especially the established historians and academia well now it so happens that we have found demonstrable evidence of an asteroid or comet impact in greenland exactly in this time period around 12000 or so years ago before today and it caused a period of global cooling called the younger dryas age so graham hancock has he stands vindicated so i really appreciate what he has done he has stood for two decades against the mainstream establishment against the dogma of the mainstream academic establishment he has endured ridicule but he has come out vindicated so great job graham hancock and he has also done a great deal of work about the ancient civilizations of the americas the ancient indigenous civilizations of of, of the americas north america as well as south america and once again the theories he, he had put forth were very unpopular but again he is beginning to get vindicated so i think he is one of the most uh, one of the most impactful researchers of recent times and uh, good for him so he he has brought out many new things that uh, otherwise would have stayed hidden because of the kind of dogmas that that uh, are perpetuated in the closed knit world of academia so it's great so i i have a very high regard for what he is doing i don't agree with everything that he says but a great deal of what he has said is is correct so that's your answer okay this is by amruta kulkarni thank you what helped us preserve our culture and religion while other ancient civilizations perished will the same help us fight against present breaking india forces so what helped us preserve our culture and religion is that we never gave up we had a very ancient tradition which we cherished very deeply see i told i spoke about the romani people they have been out of india for more than a thousand years they have faced immense persecution and they still retain elements of their native indigenous culture because they know deep down in their heart that it is the most valuable and superior culture that they can ever come across so despite all odds despite so much persecution they have hung on to this culture so this is all the way out in europe so far away from the homeland over here in india we were all together so we were able to band together fight together and withstand the onslaught of the outside forces of of the turks and the other invaders who tried their best to wipe out our culture but because we stood together even though politically we were fragmented into small kingdoms but as a culture and civilization we stood together despite the destruction of all our temples we did not give up so there is a great deal of inherent inner fortitude in all of us in our dna right and and that is what has helped us preserve our culture and religion and i think that our culture and religion is going to endure into the future there is something called the lindy effect 
and Nassim Nicholas Taleb is the uh, popularizer of this thing, of this effect. So it says that if you have a cultural phenomenon that has lasted a certain amount of time, then the odds are that it will last another equal amount of time, which is equal to what it, it has already lasted. So for example, if you have a, a play which has been going on continuously for 100 days, it is popular, then most likely it will go on for another 100 days. If you have a religion that has been around for 500 years, then most likely it will be around for at least another 500 years. Now, if you apply the Lindy effect to India, we have been around for 10,000 years, Amruta. So according to this Lindy effect, it means that we will be around for another 10,000 years in the future. So I am very positive about the future of our culture and civilization. We have to get together. We have to value what we have. We have to cherish what our ancestors gave us and take it forward in the future. And by to do that, we have to embrace science and technology and modernity while remaining rooted in our great culture and civilization. That is the way forward. So great question. Thank you. I am going to take one more question and then it will be it for today. Okay. One more question. About India, hopefully. Please give me a minute. Let me find a good question. Okay, let us take this one. What of the old culture, old scriptures, the sons were Yadu, who established the Yadu Vansha in which Lord Krishna was born? Turvasu Yavana, whose descendants established the Yavana kingdom. So yes, we had the Yadu Vansha, whose descendants are the Yadavs today. The Yadavs are the descendants of the Yadu Vansha. Lord Krishna was a member of the Yadu Vansha. Uh, the Yavanas were the Greeks. They were separate. They established the Indo-Greek kingdom in Western India, present-day Afghanistan and Pakistan and parts of Punjab. So that is, in essence, the answer to your question. Uh, is it for is it is that it for today? Okay, I will answer this in brief, sir. I want to know about Northeast history. Well, the history of the Northeast is something I may perhaps take up in a separate Q and A session. It is a very interesting region. It has its own history, very ancient history, a very rich culture, very diverse culture. It's a beautiful manifestation of the confluence of mainstream Indian culture and culture from the East. So it's a, it's a very interesting region. It's a treasure trove if you are a sociologist or a historian. So the history is very old. I cannot explain in just a couple of minutes or even in five minutes. But Perhaps I can do this in a future episode. So I think that's it for today. Thank you very, very much for all of your wonderful questions. Please keep asking me questions. 
please keep commenting in the videos with the hashtag #askabhijit and every day i'm going to pre-select 10 or 12 of your best questions i'm going to answer these here and after that i'm going to answer some live questions like i have done today so this is what we will do going forward so that is it for today tomorrow i will let you know about the episodes of the coming week so thank you once again everybody it was great it was great fun chatting to all of you and i will see you in the next episode have a good day have a good night bye